Chapter 3 Alabaster Potions The elder nations from the time of the brothers, Yodia, ancient Argive, and Corlys, were decimated by the devastation of Argoth, and much of what is known of those times is now lost. In their wake, small independent city-states arose under the all-seeing eye of the Church of Tau. Each city-state was an autonomous entity claiming fields and farms to supply their burgeoning population. The bulk of that population lived tightly packed within the city walls, so that plague and disease were more the norm than the exception. Arkal, Argivian scholar. Vosket did not show up at Ged within the week, nor within the week following. By the third week, Jodo was sure that something had gone wrong, and if there was no word by the fourth, he would go back to Alsur, Primata or no, and find out what happened. Then the spotted plague hit Ged, and the city was sealed. As plagues go, the spotted plague was more of an inconvenience than a pestilence, but it was enough to grind the city to a halt. One's joints swelled up, one's brows grew warm, and the skin erupted in a myriad of pin-sized red dots. It did not kill anyone, at least not directly, but it left its victims weak and unable to protect themselves from other diseases. So the city fathers closed the gates, sealed off the districts within the city, and in a few cases, quarantined and burned several afflicted households. The plague had several effects within Ged. First, it was assumed that it was brought from without, and since there was no sign of that particular disease from Al-Sur, or the Giva provinces, it was settled that it had to be from far off Almaz. Several Almazi traders were stoned to death in the streets before the city's noble council banished natives of that nation for their own protection and shipped them out. As a result, there would be few ships from Almaz for a while. Second, the Church of Tao experienced an influx of new members as many stragglers of the Holy Flock suddenly recalled their devotion and crammed the temples and cathedrals in order to ward off the disease. Of course, some more cynical citizens noted that the close proximity with the plague victims might increase the chance of getting the spotted plague. Said cynical citizens also noted that, were they in the position of the church, they would deliberately spread such minor plagues to encourage the faithful. Of course, such heartfelt cynics said such things very, very quietly and only to other cynics whom they knew well and trusted. Thirdly, there was an influx of enlistment in the armed forces of Ged. With the harbor and the gates closed, a lot of young men were no longer needed for the docks and fishing boats. Worse yet, the granaries were steadily dropping, and the army promised two squares a day, and that was one meal more than most men were expecting in the first place. The army also had church healers and miracle workers who could keep the brunt of the plague at bay. And finally, most of the citizens agreed that once the plague was mostly passed, there would be maneuvers to grab as much farmland as possible before the harvest set in. There was a fourth effect of the plague, and one that most citizens would not speak of. With the plague, there was an increase of talismans, witch wards, plague wheels, and curatives within the city walls. All manner of potions, infusions, poultices were used by the populace to stem the tide of the plague. Rune-carved gems were sold that guaranteed the safety of the water or wine, and scriptures, written on thin scraps of goblin skin, were wrapped around the joints to ward off swelling. There were thousands of homemade remedies, bits of folklore, and invocations to forgotten gods that all promised some relief from the spotted plague. The church took a very dim view of all this, of course, so that any such home remedies or folklore cures were carried out away from official knowledge. All the potions, poultices, parapets, and phylacteries were sold quietly and delivered in the dead of night. There was an ancient crone in the city named Mother Dobbs who, the neighborhood legend went, had the site and, for a small fee, would concoct a potion capable of curing the spotted plague or create a charm that would protect one 
from being struck down with the disease. Yet those desiring the curatives might be unwilling to visit her house and set down their money. A go-between was often needed. Someone who was unafraid to walk the plague-haunted night streets of Ged. That someone was Joda, for the time being. At least until the plague flag over the gate was removed and he could travel to Al-Sur. At least until he found Bosca again. And at least until he saved up enough money to bribe his way on a ship out of the harbor. Each night, he would take Mother Dobbs' folk cures around to those who were too timid or prudent to fetch them for themselves. He would pick up the packages as the old woman retired for the evening and set out promptly on his rounds. Well, almost promptly. Of late, he had taken to examining the potions himself in his quarters in the attic of Mother Dobbs' house before starting to deliver them. At first, he sought to understand the cures, but later, aided by his knowledge of how spells truly function, he began to try to improve upon them. Up until now, no one had complained. Joda had three deliveries this evening, for each of which he would be paid a few coins and sometimes an extra copper bit or two for his trouble. He always nodded in thanks and blessed the buyer for his gracious donation, but he knew that a few extra bits of copper would not aid him if the church caught him walking in the streets with packages of folk curatives tucked beneath his shirt. Each of the packages contained a gypsum bottle, wrapped in a bedding of wool, set inside a box made of thin wood, and the entire package wrapped in brown paper and tied with string. Within the bottle was a viscous mixture of white, yellow-white, and gray-white fluids that, if left to themselves, would settle in three bands. For that reason, Mother Dobbs instructed Joda to shake the package hard before passing along and instructed the buyer to consume the concoction as soon as he opened the package. The first package was to be delivered to an address uncomfortably close to one of the numerous temples of Tao. It was one of the townhouses that might be owned by a successful merchant or a minor bureaucrat. Joda had learned not to inquire too closely about who lived where in Ged, particularly since these people tipped well. This delivery came with instructions. He was to come to the back entrance, knock thrice, count to five, and then enter. Joda found such arrangements irritating, as if the potions were thought to be delivered by some magical pixie, as opposed to a tattered, bearded youth. Still, such buyers often tip well for Joda's indulgence in ritual. Joda took out the first package and shook it hard. He knocked three times slowly, then counted to five quickly. He threw the latch and opened the door to what seemed to be a servant's kitchen. The room was empty. The tables and cabinets cleared in anticipation of preparing the morning meal in a handful of hours. A work counter was set in the middle of the room, and the lone door out of the kitchen was opened a crack. There was money on the counter. Joda knew what to do. He set down the package on the counter and started to sweep the coins into his hand. Then he stopped. The money here was twice the normal price that Mother Dobbs usually charged. Was there a mistake? Wondered Joda, or had Dobbs raised the prices of her mixtures without telling him? Or was the rest supposed to be a tip? He paused only for a moment, and there was a voice from the cracked door. Is there a problem? The voice was soft and warm and feminine. Joda jumped at the sound of the voice, and looking up, he saw the door swing the last fraction of an inch shut. Then, he shook his head, sought the rest of the money into his hand, and left. He closed the door behind him and was three steps away when he heard the bolt solidly shut home. Joda looked at the kitchen entrance of the townhouse for a long moment, then moved on to his next delivery. The second package was to be delivered down by the docks. It was the area hit hardest by the plague, which was one of the reasons why the Almazi traders were blamed for the outbreak. He had a detour twice to avoid patrols of the night watch. In normal times, these consisted of two guards in black armor with green capes 
generally bored and easily bribed. These were not normal times, however, and each night watch patrol was accompanied by a priest of Tao. This resulted in less boredom and less bribery, both of which disappointed the watchman to no end. As he moved toward the docks, Joda passed the first of the quarantine signs. If all the members of the family succumbed to the plague, the church reserved the right to mark the house as quarantine and was forbidden to make any outside contact. Those within the house were left to survive as best as they could or die of the disease. Then, the house would be burned or ritually purified for future occupation. Joda noted that most of the quarantine houses were in poor areas and that there were few in areas that were loyal to the church. The wealthiest could afford the priest's blessing, and if everyone in the house was stricken, they could simply hire more servants. It did not surprise him that the address he was given was marked with a quarantine letter, the official document stamped with the double sunburst of the Church of Tao. In the darkness, the symbol looked like a blood-red set of eyes. Joda walked past the address, then doubled back. There was no one on the street, not even the occasional drunk. The priest had little love of the poor, so patrols were few and infrequent. He saw a flicker of motion out of the corner of his eye, and Joda turned. There was nothing there, but the hairs on the back of his neck rose. Since his escape from Al-Sur, he half expected the ragged guardian angel to reappear at any moment, but for the past few weeks, everything had been quiet. Was the figure that he had seen in Al-Sur, and seen in the forest, he was now convinced, more than just a chance encounter? He looked for the ragged man among the beggars and cripples of Ged, but had seen nothing that resembled him. Joda leaned up against the wall, across from the address, and waited for a full five minutes, but the figure that had flickered across the corner of his vision did not reappear, if it existed at all. Then, he crossed, removed the package, shook it, and quietly knocked on the door. The door opened immediately about a foot. A warm blast of air tumbled out and wrapped Joda within a soft, enticing fog. Joda fought the urge to inhale the contagious air of a plague house. Slender, palsied hands, shaken from fever, appeared out of the darkness and grasped the package, trying to tug it weakly from Joda's grasp. Payment first, said Joda, his voice low. One hand let go and retreated into the darkness, then returned with a pair of coins. That's only half, said Joda, fighting the building urge to inhale and wanted to be away from the door when he did. Please, said the voice, cracking wetly like a boil breaking open. My boy, he's nearly dead. He won't live through the night without this. That's only half, said Joda again. I have nothing else, said the wet fluid voice. When he's better, we can get the rest. Please. Joda thought for a moment. The take from the first house would cover both that package and this and leave him a handsome tip as well. But what if Mother Dobbs had expected more money from the first house? Then it would be Mother Dobbs's fault for not telling him to charge the rich more. Joda took the coins and the package disappeared within the darkness of the plague house. He turned away and took three large steps before allowing himself to inhale. Turning away, Joda caught again a fleeting glimpse of something darting around the corner, something that was watching him, something that pulled back as he approached. He walked toward the corner, but when he had reached it, whatever it was that was watching had disappeared. The last trap was a merchant shop, one that Joda had visited time and again. Joda was sure the merchant was not using the potions herself, but rather selling them again at inflated prices to other victims and potential victims. Joda would find the money in a wood box behind the main dwelling, near the midden, and leave the package in the box. However, now he was sure he was being followed, but he did not know 
if his pursuer knew that he knew. It could not be the night watch. They blundered down the streets and alleys as if they owned the city. A cut purse? There were better targets elsewhere, even in these near-empty streets. A spy for the church? Most likely, Joda decided. Some concerned citizen, probably who was following him, ready to report any violation of the law to the church, like visiting a plague house, like carrying forbidden magics. Joda lengthened his pace, and now he heard footsteps as well behind him. Soft footfalls, like feet in slippers, taking two steps to his one, struggling to keep up. He abandoned his intention of making the third drop, instead placing the package within his shirt. Joda took a right to the next corner, and then a right again. The footsteps kept up with him. He paused in an alleyway, then dodged down it, confident that his pursuer was behind him. The alleyway was narrow, and descended almost immediately down a flight of stone steps, their centers worn by the passage of many feet, so that it looked as the blocks themselves had melted. Archways littered both sides of the alley, with doors set deeply back from the stairs. Early upon his arrival in Ged, Joda had slept in such doorways. Now, he pressed himself against a shadowed archway and awaited his pursuer. Joda did not have to wait long. There was a long shadow from the entrance of the alley that slowly moved toward him. The shadow diminished as it neared until it was smaller than he was. Joda nodded to himself. At least it was too short to be his ragged guardian angel. Slowly and carefully, Joda's pursuer walked right by him. Joda lunged out of the doorway and slammed into the figure with his shoulder. Hard. It was his intention to knock his unknown pursuer to the ground, then hold him until Joda found out why he was being followed. That was his intention. But his pursuer was too quick. The young man caught a portion of the figure's cloak, and then his pursuer wheeled, dropping neatly out of the way. Joda's own momentum threw him forward and down a few stone steps. He shouted as he tumbled and struggled to regain his balance. He finally slammed against the far wall and felt something crack. A warm wetness dribbled out of the package held against his side, staining his shirt. He wheeled in place, but his would-be target had not moved from the spot. Instead, his pursuer stood in the darkness, waiting for Joda's next move. Joda shook the stars from the corner of his eye and cleared his mind. He thought of his homeland and pulled from those thoughts the energies to power his magic. He had been practicing in Mother Jobs' windowless attic and could now pull the power of the land and think of a spell at the same time. He reached into the entranceway of his mental manor house and pulled forth the spell. And he was too slow. As he readied his spell, the very ground seemed to slip away from him. It was as if the alley was a long rug and his pursuer had grabbed one end of it and shook it up and down, sending a quick series of waves down its length. Joda's eyes told him that the alley was not moving, but his stomach heaved and pitched from the feeling that he was being violently battered. All thoughts of his own spell were lost at the moment. Joda shouted and gripped the sides of a door archway in a desperate attempt to stay upright. Only slowly did the world stop spinning around him. The shadowy figure took two steps forward and held a hand, palm up, between the two of them. A small blue light flashed in the cup of that palm, illuminating them both. Joda saw a young female face framed by dark hair that was cut in bangs. The skin was smooth, the features pleasing, and if Joda were somewhere else, he would have thought to compliment the young woman, particularly if she was pursuing him. However, at the moment, the woman's soft lips were pulled back in a snarl, and her gentle brows were knotted in fury. Who in Mishra's name are you? She snapped. What do you think you're doing? Doing? said Joda. The world still rocked around him, and that was the best reply he could manage. The potions, you idiot child, said the young woman. What do you think you're doing with those potions? Joda blinked. I just run deliveries. Don't know anything about...
Then the young woman balled one hand into a fist, the one without the blue flame, and stomped her foot on the paving stones. Don't play the fool with me, child. We don't have time for it. I don't know what you're talking about, managed Joda, wondering if he could talk and call on his magical energies at the same time. Do you know what is in Mother Dobbs's potions? She said, her voice dripping with venom. Joda flinched at the mention of the name, and she continued. Yes, I know who you work for. I purchased one directly from the woman a few days ago. Joda shrugged, and she continued. Mare's milk, mineral oils, and the yolk of an egg. It would clear out your lower tract, but that's all. But do you know what the potions you deliver do? Joda's back stiffened, and a line of sweat dribbled down his spine. He had been found out. There's an odd difference between the potions the old woman sells and the ones that are delivered in the dead of night. The ones you happen to deliver really work. They cure the spotted plague, or whatever is afflicting the drinker. Joda mentally cursed himself, but it seemed so obvious to try to help Mother Dobbs' potion with a little magic of his own. He had hoped to just make them drinkable. He had never thought the difference would be so incredible or so obvious. And if I can figure this out, you bet the church can figure it out. Again, she made the foot-stomping motion. Who taught you to cast magic? Joda blinked, suddenly realizing that he was being asked a non-rhetorical question. Pardon? He managed. The pursuer leaned close, and the light crackled in her palm. To Joda, it no longer looked like a flame, but rather like a bit of a lightning bolt. Spells. Who taught you? Her face was as stern and cold as a statue's. Joda leaned back. I am Joda, of Giva Province. My master was Vasca. Now it was the woman's turn to be surprised. The dark eyebrows raised and disappeared beneath the banks. Vasca? Where is he? I don't know, said Joda. Felden's crane and crutches, she snapped. Where is he? I don't know, said Joda, realizing that he was shouting now. He lowered his voice, but did not soften his tone. We were captured by the church in Al-Sur and escaped. We split up. He was supposed to meet me here. He hasn't shown. Al-Sur, she said bitterly. Then she turned slightly and looked back toward the alleyway entrance. When she turned back, her face had changed. Still serious, but not as angry. We have company. All your shouting, no doubt. Stay put. I'll lead them off. I'll contact you later. But that... The blue flame was extinguished, and the woman became a cloak-shaped shadow again. She waved her palm upward toward Joda's face, and Joda caught a bright flash of blue light at the corners of his eyes. Then, she was gone, almost flying down the broad steps of the alleyway. Joda tried to stand and follow her, but found that he could not. Whatever spell she had worked, it robbed him of his ability to stay upright. He felt as if he was in the grip of a three-day binge without even the benefit of tasting the alcohol. Joda's stomach tried to climb on his windpipe, and he knew he would be looking at his evening meal if he moved too quickly. It seemed to be a localized version of whatever had knocked him off his feet earlier, extremely localized, and focused on him entirely. Defeated, Joda cured up in the doorway, hoping the world would stop spinning again soon enough. That's when he heard the feet, heavy boots on the paving stones. He did not have to look up to know that the night watch was coming down the alley. He could not do anything about it, even if he wanted to. The voices of the watch drifted up toward him like bubbles. What's this one? said one of the guards. Drunk, said the others. Or maybe drugged. No, 
said a third voice. Something else. This voice was as sibilant as a snake's, and Joda shuddered at the sound of it. There was a hissing noise. No, thought Joda. Sniffing. The one with the third voice was sniffing the air. Had he thrown up already and not realized it? Finally, the third voice said, Sorcery. There were spells this way. The first voice spoke up. What about this one? Leave him, said the hissing one. The church cares not for victims, only for sinners. They were gone, and the noise of their boots clattering down the alleyway. A small eternity passed. Nothing else thundered through, screamed at him, or otherwise inverted his world. Joda concentrated on long, deep breaths, pulling the cool night air into his lungs. Finally, he dug out the mirror from his right boot. Even in the minimal light of the alley, he looked horrible. His face was pale and sweaty. His beard and mustache, filling out nicely, now looked like a black square, framing cracked lips and a dry mouth. Joda stared into the mirror until his face regained something akin to a natural color. Then, he slowly pulled himself up and staggered back toward Mother Dobbs. The church was there ahead of him. There were guardsmen in the black and green uniforms, holding back the crowd as two priests escorted the old crone out of her home. Trapped between the two heavy priests, Mother Dobbs looked confused, unable to understand why the church had come for her now. She always made it to services, she tried to explain. Everyone knew about her little folk medicines. Why did they come for her now? Toward the back of the crowd, Joda knew. The church left her alone as long as they knew she was a fraud, a seller of useless nostrums to a gullible public. The moment the potions really started to cure people, thanks to him, he realized, thanks to his own meddling, the priest helped Mother Dobbs into a donkey cart. Some of the people watching jeered at Mother Dobbs. Others just looked stricken, as if one of their favorite pets had been dragged away, or, more likely, as if her customers would be the next occupants of the donkey cart. One of the priests cracked a whip, and the mule lurched forward, carrying off the confused old woman. The other priest nailed a quarantine sign on the front of the door, emblazoned with the double sunburst of the Church of Tao. The seal was fresh and ran like wet blood. Then, he followed the cart, intoning the praises and wisdom of the Holy Church. Joda watched them go. Surely, he thought, they would let her go. They would find out she had no wizardry in her, that her potions and nostrums were fakes. The magic sniffer would get nothing out of her but a bad headache from all the incense she surrounded herself with. They would have to let her go after a few days, wouldn't they? Joda realized that once they knew that Mother Dobbs was harmless, they would go looking for the real wizard in the area. Her suppliers, her friends, her delivery boy. Joda looked at the blood-red seal of the church and bit his lower lip. The next morning, under an assumed name, he enlisted in the Get Army. And within the week, when the plague flag finally was pulled down, he was marching with the military unit north, toward Al-Sur.